Well, my promise for today is Psalm 5, verses 11 and 12. Like I've often shared with you, I think it's good to have some promises. There's about four or five, six that I like that uh, I, hope you, I hope you've got a list that you like. I love Isaiah 26, 3, that will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee. Uh, the idea there in the Hebrew is a double emphasis. I will keep him in perfect, perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. And then I, I love uh, Romans 8, 28. I love uh, uh, just, uh, I've got a, one, a bunch of, about four or five that I just sort of lean on and run to when I need to. When I need to. But uh, this is, I think, one of the greatest promises in all the Word of God. Psalm 5, verses 11 and 12. It says, But let all those that put their trust in thee rejoice. Let them ever shout for joy, because thou defendest them. Isn't that a wonderful promise? God has promised to defend us and protect us. Uh, God's people should never be guilty of fear. Uh, well, we live in a, we, we're, we're experiencing a, a terrible time in our country, are we not? And we're seeing tremendous oppression. Uh, did you see, you know, of course, you all saw where uh, they sent 30 FBI agents uh, with machine guns, uh, police cars, lights flashing. Wonderful theater, wasn't it? And uh, uh, to the ex-president of the United States. And, uh, you know, th this country's in deep trouble. <laughs> uh, the uh, FBI, the leadership, is corrupt to the bone. Uh, the CIA is corrupt to the bone. Uh, our president and his family is corrupt to the bone. I like the, 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 we call it the Biden crime family. <laughs> and uh, we're, uh, they, the, these corrupt, wicked people are in control of our country today. And they're trying to bring about major changes. We talked about this earlier. The assault on the family. That's what all this uh, sexualization and gender business is and down, even down in our elementary schools. They're trying to change the whole... Uh, they, uh, the Marxists know that the two biggest obstacles to the Marxist takeover is the family, the nuclear family, and Bible Christianity. And so the assault has got to be on the nuclear family and on Christianity if they're going to establish a Marxist uh, revolution in this country. And we're in the process of that. I hope, uh, hope we can stop it. But uh, the Word of God, uh, Proverbs 24, 19. Fret not thyself because of evildoers. Uh, there is a sense in which it looks like the foundations, are, uh, the, uh, the wheels are coming off in this country. <laughs> it looks like the foundations are being destroyed. But listen, God's in his temple. God's in control. Uh, I don't lose a wink of sleep over, over politics. I love politics, uh, uh, obviously, <laughs> but uh, I don't lose a wink of sleep. Lord's in control of these things. Uh, we as God, we're not to be fearful of these things. But anyhow, the reason I <laughs> this is one reason I love this wonderful verse. Let all those that put their trust in thee rejoice. Let them ever shout for joy, because thou defendest them. Let them also that love thy name be joyful in thee. Now look at this wonderful promise. For thou, Lord, wilt bless the righteous. With favor wilt thou compass him about as with a shield. Uh, the blessing of God is everything, amen? The blessing of God is everything. Uh, I, I, Proverbs 10, 22, The blessing of the Lord, it maketh rich. And he addeth no sorrow with it. 
I have a, we have a wonderful salvation, do we not? What a wonderful promise that is. All right, now, we we're looking at the parables of the kingdom. We talked about the mystery form of the kingdom. It's called a mystery. Remember, the Lord uh, had to postpone. He was getting ready to present the kingdom and his triumphal entry. Uh, Israel rejected him. He had to postpone the kingdom. And that's when he... Uh, talked about Israel, how I would have gathered you as a hen would gather her chicks and so on. Uh, we see even in spite of the hatred of the Pharisees, we see, we, we still see the great heart of, uh, the love of God in his heart for uh, Israel, for the people of Israel. And then um, we come over now to, uh, uh, we come to uh, these, uh, these eight parables and uh, these, were, it's called the mystery form of the kingdom, the literal kingdom, the millennial kingdom that the Lord was about to erect had to be postponed because of Israel's rebellion, the rebellion of the leadership. And so the kingdom now takes a different form. It's a mystery in that uh, the Old Testament did not see this and prophesy this. So this mystery, though uh, hidden in the Old Testament, is now revealed in the New. The Lord, in the parables, those eight parables of Matthew 13, reveals the different form that the kingdom has taken. You still have uh, God's in control, God's the king, but uh, now we'll, uh, from the time of his, uh, the triumphal entry to the uh, second coming, uh, these eight parables outline the history of what we call the church age. And so the, the kingdom, the Lord's in control, but the kingdom is sort of hidden in one sense in that God's always in control, God's always king, and God controls events. Uh, but we see uh, uh, God's limiting, self-limiting of his providence. Uh, the Word of God nowhere teaches what we call absolute double predestination, <laughs> that God, uh, God's providence is limiting. God's not the author of sin. Uh, God will allow men to sin, and God will allow men to do cruel things. When Adam fell in the garden, a uh, man in, uh, inherited his sin nature. And God has allowed that sin to take its consequences. And uh, so uh, anyhow, but God is, uh, providence is self-limiting. God's not the author of sin. He doesn't cause men to sin. Uh, God did not cause the fall. Uh, men, uh, men sinned, and that was the natural consequence of their sin. God permitted the fall. But anyhow, that's what we call the mystery form of the kingdom. <clears throat> And we, we talked about Christendom, how it's uh, in, the, in this mystery form of the kingdom, there'll be apostasy. By the way, what is an, an apostate? Well, this, uh, eight, these er, uh, eight parables outline the apostasy. Christendom, apostate Christianity. But what is an apostate? <laughs> Anybody know? The Word of God seems to suggest that an apostate is somebody who once held the truth and seemingly believe the truth, but then rejects the truth. And there seems to be no remedy for apostasy in the Word of God. Once a man apostatizes, and by the way, there seems to be no greater zealot against Bible Christianity than an apostate. <laughs> a man who once professed Christianity, once he turns against it, he seems to be the greatest zealot and the greatest hater of Bible Christianity. And that seems to be a pattern through history. Some of the worst uh, infidels and the, the greatest uh, persecutors of the people of God in the Middle Ages, what we call the inquisitors, had been people who had been believers or professed to be believers, but then apostatized. And they became informants and very cruel inquisitors. 
but they professed Christianity at one time. So oftentimes the uh, apostate is the greatest zealot against his former faith. But uh, anyhow, that's what, uh, uh, but this mystery form of the kingdom shows that in this church age, there'll be a mixture of believers and unbelievers. And that uh, there'll be apostate professing Christianity, profession without possession. And we began to look at that last week a little bit. And we looked at the, uh, the parable of the sower. Most of the seed is not going to find fruitful soil, is it not? Don't be surprised if the majority of people you witness to don't get saved. Uh, the parable of the sower illustrates that. A lot of uh, seed doesn't often fall on fruitful soils, soil that will produce fruit. And then you saw the, uh, uh, if you look at your hand out there, you have the list of the, the eight parables and the wheat and the, the wheat and the weeds or the wheat and the tares. And uh, this is a great example of how uh, Bible Christianity will be um, that the, the church will uh, apostatize and will contain unbelievers and so on. And the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, and look, come over to uh, let's come over to um, Matthew thirty-six, where the Lord gives His interpretation of the tares. Matthew, Matthew twelve, I'm sorry, Matthew thirteen. Then come down to verse thirty-six, where the Lord gives the interpretation of the parable of the tares. Then Jesus sent the multitude away and went in unto the house and his disciples came unto him saying, declare unto us the parable of the tares of the field. Now the tares are going to be uh, grain that looks exactly like wheat. So if you look at those two things at, certain, at a certain stage in the growth, you can't tell the difference. They look, ex they look exactly alike. Uh, furthermore, those tares, uh, the root will become, uh, when it's sown among the wheat, uh, the uh, the roots of the tares will uh, entwine and uh, uh, with the with the wheat. So when you pull the wheat up, you'll be pulling the tares up. When you pull the tares up, you'll be pulling the wheat up because those vines have become intertwined. And so uh, they say, now Lord, should we uh, go in and pull these tares up? And the Lord uh, here, the Lord gives his answer. Now look at verse uh, seventeen. Then he answered and said unto them, He that soweth the good seed is the son of man. Uh, the parable of the sower. The son of man. Uh, Christ came to seek and to save that which is lost. He's the sower. And God's people, the sons of the kingdom, are also sowers of the seed of the gospel. He that soweth the good seed is the son of man. Now look, watch very carefully. Look at verse 38. The field is what? It's very, very important here. The field is what? Not the church. Augustine, John Calvin said that the, uh, that the field was the church. Therefore, it's all right to have unbelievers and pagans and infidels in the church. And you shouldn't be trying to exclude them because you'd be rooting up the wheat with the tares. Those men deliberately and defiantly uh, violated the very word of God. Christ himself said the field was the world, not the church. By the way, it's a powerful argument for uh, religious liberty, is it not? We're not to, we as God's people, we're not to... Uh, Shoot, uh, we're not to execute infidels and hang them and put them in the electric chair and so on. Uh, the only thing we have, the only thing we should do with false teaching is to avoid them, separate from them. <laughs> uh, we, ha we have no right to persecute them and, and get control of the government and impose the government on people and enforce your religion on people through the government. 
That's what all the mainline reformers did. Calvin, uh, Luther, Zwingli all got control of the government and then made the civil government impose their particular religion on everybody within the jurisdiction of that government. It's what we call state religion or established religion. When you have the government impose its particular religion on everybody. We have no such thing as a state religion in America today unless it be the religion of humanism. Uh, the civil state is imposing uh, this woke <coughs> culture and uh, imposing uh, uh, humanism on everybody, but it's not imposing any particular religion unless you want to call humanism and the woke culture religion. The field is the world. The good seed are the children of the kingdom. But the tares are the children of the wicked ones. Satan sowed these tares. Certain Satan corrupts the church. The enemy that sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the world, and the reapers are the angels. So the only time God's people can, uh, God, God in the end will separate, uh, separate out the false teachers and so on. So the Lord here is talking about the end of the age. Now look up here just a second. We're going to get to the uh, Olivet Discourse here in just a minute. But uh, this will talk, uh, the, this will, uh, talk about the uh, Christ, these, the Olivet Discourse will go from right shortly after the rapture all the way to the second coming. These eight parables cover the time from when the Lord came to earth to seek and to save that which was lost, his earthly ministry. And, these, and this last parable, these last parables will be the end of the age. So these eight parables cover this whole church age from the coming of Christ, his earthly ministry, to the second coming. So when you look at these eight parables, it's giving us a description of what the, king of, the kingdom of God will be like during this church age. So that last parable, the parable of the householder, is an admonition to the saints that have the truth. Now you need to go and take these old truths and these new truths and take them and spread the gospel to the world. That's the parable of the householder. So that's, what the, that's why this 13th chapter is very, very, very important. It's an outline. It's a description of what's going on in our time in the church age. All right. So the parable of the tares, and then you have the, um, then you have the uh, the mustard seed, and again this is a picture of Christendom. Uh, remember the uh, mu uh, this mustard seed will grow into a tree very quickly, and will very speedily it will become a place where the uh, where the birds will be in the branches. And it grows very quickly. Well, apostasy began very early, in the earliest days of the church. Now, the Roman Catholic Church had its origins really right around 200 A.D. And so very early, you began to see the corruption of the gospel. And so that tree is a picture of Christendom, professing Christianity, apostate, unbelieving Christianity. And that is the dominant religion today, isn't it? Apostate Christianity, real true Bible Christianity is almost invisible. <laughs> if you look at our culture, is it not? Very small minority. Narrow is the way. Broad is the way that leads to destruction. So uh, this parable of the uh, tares, the parable of the, uh, uh, the uh, mustard seed, rather, is a, is a picture of, uh, of professing apostate Christendom, apostate Christianity. All the cults and religions and Roman Catholicism and so on, these things, this apostasy grew very quickly. Birds in the Word of God often have the connotation of a theological error and, and of apostasy. So we see these birds in this tree, in the tree. 
I think a picture of a professing apostate Christianity with its a liberal theology, its liberal doctrine, the doctrine that will send men to hell. But, uh, and then you have the yeast and the leaven. You remember the woman takes the three measures and then puts leaven in. Leaven always, by the way, the word of God is always very consistent with its types. Uh, leaven is always, without exception, a picture of sin. You remember the, the leaven of the Sadducees was false doctrine. They denied the uh, deity of Christ, denied the resurrection, uh, and so on. And uh, the leaven of the Pharisees was self-righteous hypocrisy. I believe God hates self-righteous hypocrisy more than any other sin. <laughs> and then the, well, then the leaven of Herod was worldliness and materialism. And so this uh, woman took these three measures. The three measures, I think, is a picture of fellowship. The three measures of wheat. You remember Abraham, uh, uh, Sarah provided, pre prepared three measures of wheat to feed those angels. Do you remember that over in the book of Genesis? And uh, those, uh, among, uh, I believe that angel was a, the pre-incarnate Christ. And so those three measures, are, you see that often uh, involved in the, uh, the offerings and so on. So I think, uh, look, uh, when you, in light of Abraham's uh, feeding of uh, the pre-incarnate Christ, I think that uh, those three measures of wheat is a picture of fellowship and of uh, a, a right relationship with God. Well, what did that uh, woman do? She hid the leaven among the three measures of wheat. That leaven is always a picture of corruption and destruction and uh, the affair uh, of sin and so on. Well, what has been the, uh, the great object of Satan in Christendom and this false professing church is not to destroy Bible Christianity and destroy that fellowship with God. There's nothing more important than my relationship with God. So that leaven is a picture of how a, a professing apostate Christianity has destroyed uh, that proper relationship with God, that love relationship, uh, which is the basis of obedience and so on. And then you have the... Uh, then you have the hidden treasure. I think that's a picture of Israel. Then the pearl, I think, is a type of the church, a picture of the church. So there is a positive side here. But where, uh, where, did, the, where did the Lord find the treasure? The treasure was in the field. The treasure was in the world, I think, speaking of Israel. And I think a pearl is, is uh, we can get into some of these things, but I just we want to look at the prophecy, okay? But uh, then the, uh, the pearl... And then the, uh, the, then the net, the drag net, that's what's going to happen at the end of the world when the angels will separate the wicked from the regenerate. And then you see the, the householder where the Lord admonishes these disciples. Now you've heard these great truths, these old truths, these wonderful truths. And much of the new truth is built on the old truth. So take these old truths and these new truths, take this gospel, this wonderful doctrine into the world. The householder, he brings out these great truths. New and old. All right? We're, we're householders in one sense. It's our job to manage the gospel and bring the gospel into the world. All right? That's kind of a quick overview. Now, let's come to uh, Matthew 24 and 25. This is called the Olivet Discourse. And we're just looking at prophecy. And I'm trying to lay the foundation now as we go to the book of the Revelation. Good Lord willing, maybe we can start that next week, uh, the book of the Revelation. But all these things now are preparatory. Now we come to the uh, Olivet Discourse. The Lord in Matthew taught five great discourses, or we'll just call them messages. He taught five great messages in the book of Matthew. 
All right, the Olivet Discourse took place. The Lord left and crossed the, left the temple, uh, crossed the Kidron Valley going east toward Bethany. As he crossed the Kidron Valley, he came to the Mount of Olives. And they began to ask him some questions. And so he sat down and began to uh, preach or teach what we call the Olivet Discourse uh, because he was sitting on the Mount of Olives at the time. And these two chapters are two very important chapters of Bible prophecy. The Lord himself now is teaching about these events. And he's dealing basically now with, uh, with the um, tribulation period. The Mount of Olives uh, the, or the Olivet Discourse has nothing to do with the church. The church is not in chapter 24 and 25 of Matthew. Uh, the rapture has already taken place. So now the Lord is going to tell us what's going to happen after the rapture takes place. So this Olivet Discourse will take place from after the rapture all the way to the second coming of Christ. This is one of the most important prophetic passages in all the Word of God. The Lord Jesus Christ is teaching the future. If you look at your handout that I gave you there, look at the, uh, this is the events of the Olivet Discourse. says the uh, in the tribulation period, Matthew 24, 4 through 26. Those first 26 verses now, 4 through 26, have to do with this tribulation period. Remember now it's divided up into two parts. You have three and a half years, and then you have the, the second part is another three and a half years, seven years altogether. And there's all kinds of debate among prophecy scholars uh, uh, in the tribulation, you have three series of judgments. It's a horrifying picture. God pours out uh, seven, uh, three different series of judgments during this time period. And there's great debate. Some think that the seals, uh, you have the, these three series of judgments, are the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls. There's all kinds of, dis there's all kinds of disagreement among prophecy students as to when these seals take place or when these uh, judgments take place. Some of them think all the seal judgments take place in the first three and a half years. And then the uh, trumpet and bowl or vile judgments take place in the second half of, of it. Some prophecy scholars put all the judgments, the seals, trumpets, and bowls over in the second half. Some think that uh, the seals and the trumpets take place in the first half. The point is we don't know. <laughs> it's just be idle speculation, all right? But we know that there's going to be terrifying judgments, a series of three judgments uh, in this seven-year time period. The second half is called the Great Tribulation. Uh, that term is not reserved for the first half. But the Great Tribulation is also, also called the time of Jacob's troubles in the second three and a half years. And the most horrifying judgments of all, and these are primarily on Antichrist himself, are the bold or vile judgments. So some like to place them at the very, very end of the uh, seven-year period. So with that understanding, now look at the, look at the handout that I've given you. Okay. Now the uh, Mount, the Olivet Discourse is, uh, takes place right after 23, chapter 23. And in chapter 23, does anybody know what that chapter is all about briefly without looking at it? <laughs> all right. In Jeremiah, uh, in uh, chapter 23, most of that chapter 
is the Lord's, is the Lord's denunciation of the Pharisees. Now we're talking about the lowly, lovely Jesus. He calls those Pharisees, he calls them hypocrites seven times in that chapter. He calls them serpents. He calls them a brood of vipers. And uh, you make a, a convert, you try, you, uh, he talks about their missions activity. And these missionaries, these Pharisees, they travel all over the world making converts. And what, do, what kind of, what does he turn those converts, what did they turn those converts into? Children of hell. And so, uh, you know, there's another side to the lovely Lord Jesus, is there not? Uh, the modern concept of Christ, he's sort of a, a senile old man sitting in a rocking chair, slobbering in his board, uh, beard. You know, have you ever, that's basically the view of Christ today, or God today. He just looks the other way. He tolerates sin. Let's just love everybody and tolerate everything. And then somehow all the evils in the world will go away if you just love and tolerate enough. And that's the thinking of a lot of people today. No, he has a severe side. And uh, anyhow, here's a word that maybe you ought to be familiar with called a Jeremiah. And uh, that means a strong denunciation. Many consider Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, to be the strongest prophet as far as denouncing sin. In fact, his denunciations were so, so strong and powerful that uh, a, a sharp rebuke is called a Jeremiah. Well, uh, Jeremiah wasn't nearly as harsh as the Lord Jesus Christ was. <laughs> uh, if, if the Lord Jesus Christ was alive, I'd say that he would be in the militant fundamentalist camp. He would denounce sin and talk about separation, uh, even name names, would he not? Uh, he even got political. He called. Have you ever heard say, well, a preacher never ought to get involved in politics? Andrew Carnegie said that you should never, if you want to win friends and influence people, you should never talk about religion or politics. I don't know of anything worth talking about other than religion and talk, uh, politics to you. <laughs> but anyhow, uh, the idea is that uh, the Lord Jesus Christ uh, could be very severe. There's a severe side to God. And he renounces sin. But he attacks these Pharisees, and at the very end of it, we see the great loving heart of the Lord. He said, uh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, oh, how I would have gathered you as a hen gathers her chicks and so on. So now he postpones the kingdom, right, because of their rebellion and the rejection of him. All right, that's the, uh, that's the previous chapter. And then in tw uh, that's in chapter uh, 23. And then in 24 now, he gives us this great prophecy. He's going to prophesy the events will take place from the time of his earthly ministry to his second coming. Okay, that's what that's all about. All right now, in uh, Matthew 24, 4 through 8, we believe that the Lord is talking about and prophesying the events of the first three and a half years. And then in uh, Matthew 9 through 14, he's talking about the events in the second half. Again, now, these things are debatable, but we, we don't know. The, the chronology of this is uncertain. But that's, what, that's what's going on, all right? So, now this, uh, if you look at your handout, it says the entire Olivet Discourse is about God's plan for Israel in the last days. All right? The church is not here. The church has already been raptured out. This is all about Israel and also unbelievers uh, or uh, Gentiles in the tribulation period that get saved or refuse to get saved, all right? But it's about Israel, okay? 
Now look at, uh, turn to Matthew 24 and look at the, let's look at the first few verses. <clears throat> it said, and Jesus went out and departed from the temple and his disciples came to him for to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said unto them, see ye not all these things. Christ is no doubt pointing to Herod's temple, which was absolutely magnificent. You remember he actually added to and built on Zerubbabel's temple, which was sort of despised and sort of held in contempt. It uh, did not have the glory of Solomon's wonderful temple. Right, Herod's going to come along and build a magnificent temple. And uh, so that's what they're talking about. When he says that your house left unto you desperate, a, a, a desolate, he was probably talking about the temple. Because in 70 AD, about 40 years after this, Rome is going to come. They're going to build scaffolding around that temple with all kinds of wood and burn that temple to the, to the ground. And uh, then that, uh, they'll, they'll not leave one, literally not leave one stone on another. They'll destroy the temple through all those uh, rocks, big stones down into the Kidron Valley. And then when the fire, uh, then uh, pretty soon when the, uh, they'll be able to go in uh, to uh, the rubble and take all the gold that was in that temple. Yeah, but prophesied exactly as the Lord uh, it occurred, uh, exactly as the Lord prophesied about four years later. And Jesus said unto them, See ye not all these things? Verily I say unto you, There shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. And as he sat down upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately, saying, Tell us when shall these things be? All right, now Christ, uh, Matthew will not answer that question. Luke will tell us that it will be the destruction of the temple. If you go over to Luke 21. Luke 21 and Mark 13 also have a shortened version of the Olivet Discourse. But so Luke will answer the question, when is the temple going to be destroyed? And basically in a few days, comparatively speaking. And what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end thereof? All right, the rest of Matthew 24 basically will give us some of these signs. And if you read Matthew 24, 4 through 8, it's very, very much, very comparable to Revelation 6. And Revelation 6 is dealing with the seals, and we believe dealing with the first half of the seven-year tribulation. Okay? Now look at your, uh, if you look at your handout, Matthew 24, 4 through 8, these are some of the signs. You're asking for signs when I'm going to return, right? These are some of the signs the Lord is saying here, telling us about. Many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ. We've had a lot of, lot of, now by the way, a lot of these things are already have been taking place over the centuries. But I believe what's happening here, the Lord is saying these things are going to be intensified. There'll be more false prophets, but also be international, more worldwide, these events, the earthquakes and all these things. So there'll be an intensification of these disasters and these false Christs and so on. Then also more international, more worldwide as far as their, uh, these events. Then you shall hear of wars and rumors of war. Nations shall rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Okay, I think you could include in this the battle of Gog and Magog. During this first three and a half years is going to be wars and rumors of war. And there shall be famines. And there shall be pestilences and earthquakes in diverse places. And we still have, we have those things now. But as I say, during the Great Tribulation, I think these things will be more common, will be intensified and be more international more worldwide. 
And uh, if you, but if you look over on the right-hand side the, in Revelation 6, basically these, the, that chapter is paralleling, I think, the events of Matthew 24, 4 through 8. Then shall, men, then shall they deliver you up. Now, I think verse 9 probably is the dividing line. Now, I think we're getting over into the second half, the time of Jacob's trouble or the great <coughs> tribulation. But you can see they shall deliver you up to be afflicted and shall kill you and you shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. I think this is the result. I think the Jews will probably find, have persecution, but it will not be anything quite like the great tribulation in the second half. All right, so the Lord is answering those questions. They're really, answering, they're really asking two questions. Lord, now when, when is this temple going to be destroyed? What's going to happen here? And then, Lord, what are going to be the signs of you coming? Now, what, what, uh, what was their understanding? When did they think the Lord was going to erect and overthrow the Roman Empire and set up the kingdom, what we would call the millennium? When did, they, when did the disciples think that was going to occur? Almost immediately, yeah, <laughs> almost immediately. But the Lord has to, has to postpone that kingdom, right, because of their rebellion. All right? And so here the Lord is telling and giving us the signs of his coming, of his second coming, and meaning in the, in the tribulation in this time period, this seven-year time period. All right, so if you look at <clears throat> 24, 4 through 8, that's probably the first half, first three and a half years. This will be the seals of the kingdom. Revelation 24, 9 through 14 is going to be the second half of the kingdom. <clears throat> All right, then the Lord's going to give uh, some, uh, some parables and some other things. It's going to give some more details about the tribulation period. The Lord will talk about the abomination that causes desolation. An abomination is something that God hates. And so uh, Antichrist is going to break that treaty at the three and a half year period, a three and a half year mark of the Great Tribulation. He's going to stop all worship. He's going to go into the temple and demand worship as God. He's going to oppose Christ, oppose God. And that's going to begin, uh, Satan will be thrown out of heaven at the midpoint. And Satan in his anger is going to declare even greater, uh, declare war on Israel. Uh, Israel is, going to, is told by God that you need to escape. You need to run as quickly as you can. If you're up on the roof of your house, don't go down into the house to get your coat. <laughs> you run. And uh, so uh, they're going to, uh, the Jews are going to flee down to Basra or what would be modern, we call it Petra today, down in the south of Jordan for uh, protection and, and other places. And so that's taking place now at the midpoint of the, tri of the tribulation period. So 20, uh, 24 verses 15 through 26 is just giving more details about this tribulation period. And then you come to uh, Revelation 24, 27 through 51. It's, uh, there we see the Lord coming back. Remember, there's a sky, uh, the soon uh, the, uh, it will be a period of darkness. The moon will not give us light and so on. What's going to break that darkness at the very end? The Lord coming back with a shout, <laughs> and uh, we uh, will be riding with him on white horses, wearing white linen, and the whole world will see him at once. Who have ever thought that would have happened until today, right? Uh, cannot we, uh, if the Lord comes back, are you going to lighten up the sky? The whole world will be bright. The whole world will see him return. That's why if somebody tells you, well, Christ has already come back, but he's over in the temple or down under the temple or he's hiding somewhere, don't believe him. 
Or if uh, Christ is out in the wilderness, don't believe him. When Christ comes back, everybody's going to know that he's coming back. <laughs> He'll come back with a shout, with the voice of the archangel. Uh, the heavens will light up. And the Lord Jesus Christ will come back as King Jesus to claim his crown rights. All right. And then if you then if you come to the very end of chapter 24, you get three illustrations. They give us some uh, tell us somewhat of what the nature of his return will be at the very end of the chapter. And it talks about the fig tree. And you begin to see the fig tree blossom. Well, when you begin to see these, uh, you know, that the summer is nigh and so on. Well, when you begin to see these signs, these early signs, no crisis coming soon. Uh, that battle of Gog and Magog and all those uh, wars and famines and earthquakes and this tremendous, the intensity of these things and the multiplication of these events. Uh, look up, your redemption is drawing nigh. And then there's the, uh, then talks about Noah. Did anybody know when uh, Noah, when the uh, when when the Lord would come, when the flood would come? No, but they knew it must have been soon. Noah's building an ark, right? So when they saw Noah building that ark, uh, they you would know that uh, Christ was coming back. The flood was coming soon. Judgment was coming. And then you have the uh, the two servants, and uh, the servants. Uh, one uh, was ready for his master. The other was uh, unready. I think these are pictures of salvation. Then you come over to Matthew 25 now, and you see actually three parables for that whole chapter. And all these parables now relate to the second coming of Christ. The first parable you have is the ten virgins. This is a picture of Israel. And you, you know the story. Five had oil and five didn't have oil. The oil is a picture of salvation. And when those, those virgins came back, to get into the feast, the door was locked. Uh, once, the day, once the day of salvation is ended, it's ended. Now is the day of salvation. <laughs> those, those, those virgin, that oil, no, without the Holy Spirit, there's no salvation, right? <laughs> so those virgins without the oil is a picture of unredeemed Israel. Israel that's lost in its sin. And then you have a second parable dealing with the talents. You know, they, they, some made uh, invested and made uh, doubled their uh, investment, and one man took and hid the talent. And the word of God said he was a wicked servant. So the oil, the talents are a picture of salvation. The wicked servant wasn't saved. <laughs> and then you have the third parable, and this is the uh, uh, the parable of the uh, hospitality. I believe this is a, a judgment on the Gentiles. Remember now, in this tribulation period, the, in this time period, uh, the Jews are going to be persecuted. And one way you can identify somebody's salvation is how they treat the Jews. If they helped the Jews and protected the Jews and gave them shelter and cover and a cup of cold water, uh, that, house, that hospitality to the Jews was indicative of salvation. You don't get to heaven by good works, by being a nice person helping people. <laughs> But the hospitality was a picture of salvation. So anyhow, that's the, uh, we covered a lot of ground today, I know. But <laughs> that's the Mount of Olives. That's the Olivet Discourse. The wonderful prophetic message that the Lord preached from the Mount of Olives. All right. Let's all bow our heads and, and we'll be dismissed.